Let's now turn congregation to our scripture reading for this afternoon, and we will be reading from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2. The second letter of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians, and reading chapter 2. God's word here, inspired by the Spirit, written by the Apostle Paul, to the church of Thessalonica, but a word that is ever applicable to God's people and his church throughout the ages and also yet today. We'll be reading the entire chapter, chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but a pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that brothers, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish, you, establish them in every good work and word. <clears throat> And our focus, the attention of our message tonight, it will be on the first portion of the chapter, verses 1 through 12. Let me just reread verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, writes Paul, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. <clears throat> May the Holy Spirit lead and guide us here this afternoon in the truth of, of that portion of God's holy word. And dear friends in our Lord Jesus Christ, among the various subjects related to the end times and relating to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, one that always garners a great deal of interest and curiosity is also the coming of a person who is called or labeled the Antichrist. 
And so not surprisingly, many books and articles have been written on this figure, who he is, what he will be like, and when he will appear. Indeed, there are some Christians, you know, who believe that the Antichrist may already be actually on earth and have been born, and that the time of his public revelation or manifestation and power is only some years hence. But in any case, people always wondered about the coming of the Antichrist. And so I thought that would be a good subject for this afternoon, because it is a subject that Paul deals with here, inspired by God in this chapter that we just read from chapter 2 of his letter to the Thessalonians. Many consider these 12 verses, the first 12 verses of this chapter, uh, to really be the one that gives us the most information about the Antichrist to come. Although you noticed, as I read these words of Scripture, the passage does not use the word Antichrist in it. Rather, it refers to that figure as the man of lawlessness. The only place in the Bible where the word Antichrist is used is in the first letter of John. In fact, John uses that term four times in his letter. And he also speaks of Antichrists, plural. First John 2, verse 18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. And that's a very instructive verse, really, because John speaks of one Antichrist who's coming. He also speaks of many Antichrists who have already come. You see, the word Antichrist means simply someone who is against Christ or seeks to usurp the place of Christ. And for John, more specifically, the Antichrist meant any leader in the church who denied Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, or denied the truth of the gospel. And so John writes in chapter 2, verse 22, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. However, there is also a figure or a person who denies Christ and opposes him to such a degree and with such great power that he is typically called the Antichrist. That's the person that's being referred to in our text and whom Paul refers to as the man of lawlessness, where the King James and the New King James versions of the Bible call him the man of sin. Now I'll say a little more about those titles in just a moment. Now let's consider five points this afternoon in connection with this person, the coming Antichrist, as you can see on your outlines, and that may seem like a lot of points, but I will not be lengthy on each of these points. <clears throat> now the first matter of our text deals with when, when the Antichrist appears. You see, Paul wrote this chapter in his second letter to the Thessalonians because some of them had a wrong idea as to the return or the coming of Christ. And keep in mind that these Thessalonians were new Christians. They were just recent converts. And so they could easily be swayed by what other Christians might be saying. And some of the Christians, some of their fellow Christians were saying to them that the day of Christ, of his second coming, had already occurred. 
which, which caused a lot of concern and, and uh, interest in the, in the Thessalonian church. How can that be? Uh, I listened to verses 1 and 2 of the chapter. Paul writes here, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now the expression, the day of the Lord, in Scripture, in the New Testament, is a common reference to the second coming of Christ, the day, the moment when he returns. It's always a reference to that great and glorious ending of this present age when the Lord Jesus comes back. For instance, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter 5, verse 2, Paul had written, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And some of the Thessalonians apparently interpreted that to mean that people would not even be aware of when Christ would return. He would come back unnoticed, like a thief comes in the night. In fact, by the time that Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, some in the congregation were alarmed that Christ had already come back. What would make them think that? Well, some said, as we read in the chapter, some said that a, a spirit, someone from God, had, had, had told them this. Others said they, this had been told them by a preacher or a teacher among them. Others said that they had received a letter from Paul and his co-workers, which said that the day of the Lord was already here. But none of that was true. Paul tells them, no, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's second coming wasn't there yet, writes Paul. He writes in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And what is that saying? It's saying that something else, some certain things have to happen yet before Christ returns. And two of those things mentioned here are the rebellion, says Paul, must come first, and the man of lawlessness must be revealed. Now it is, of course, true that no one knows exactly when our Lord Jesus will return again from heaven. No one knows that day or that hour, Jesus himself told us, and so we must never try to figure that out exactly, as some have been tempted to do in the past and in the church, setting a particular day, even sometimes a particular, yeah, this particular month and a year when they said, now Christ is going to come back. And that's folly, of course, and has always proven to be untrue. On the other hand, the scriptures do tell us, in fact, Jesus himself told us that there are certain signs, certain indications, we call them the signs of the times, which point us to Christ's coming. You can read about those, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, and in parallels in the other Gospels, where Jesus tells the disciples what is all going to happen before he returns. And one sign Jesus mentions that will happen before he returns is that there will be a great falling away among many believers, a great falling away, an apostasy. We call it the great apostasy. And that's also what Paul, I think, is referring to here in verse 3 when he writes that the rebellion must come first because the word rebellion 
in the Greek language is apostasia, which sounds like apostasy, right? It's really referring there to those who resist God and fall away from him. And uh, Jesus has said, many will fall away from me before I return. And that will be closely connected to another occurrence, he says, and that is the appearance of the man of lawlessness, the coming of the great deceiver, the Antichrist. That too has to happen yet, according to the Apostle Paul. So, so he's implying really, implying here in this passage, that Christ had not yet returned because these signs had not yet been fulfilled. The great rebellion and the coming of the lawless one was still to come. And so that makes us ask then, well, when will the Antichrist appear? Well, we can say it will be before, of course, the appearance of Christ himself. And I believe it will be rather shortly before the return of Jesus. There will not going to be a long time span, a long period of time between the appearance of the Antichrist and the appearance of the Christ, our Lord Jesus. For we read in verse 8 of our text, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So for a short while, the Antichrist will reign over this earth with awesome power, as we'll see, but Christ will cut his reign short when he, the sovereign Lord, returns from heaven. That brings me to our second point this afternoon, which is, what will the Antichrist be like? What kind of figure or person will this be? Let's note a few things about him that we read in our passage. In verse 3, you notice he is called the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction, which indicates, first of all, that he is a man. He is a human being. The Antichrist is not Satan. He will come under the influence of Satan. As verse 9 indicates, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. And so Satan is his master. But he is a man. He's not, as some people have said, the Antichrist is going to be an evil nation, an empire that will dominate the world in the end times. But that empire will indeed come about, but will be dominated itself or ruled over by a sovereign, by a world ruler. That's why Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. He will be the supreme ruler over this earth. And yes, notice that Paul calls him the man of lawlessness, and in verse 8 he calls him the lawless one. You might wonder, well, what does that mean? You know, when you and I hear the word lawlessness, we think immediately of a condition of anarchy, where there is no rule of law. I think of a country today like Haiti. I'm sure you've heard through the news what it's like in Haiti at this time. The major cities, they say, are basically under the control of gangs. They're running around with guns, and, uh, and the government itself, the official authorities, are, are not in control of Haiti today. They're too weak to operate. Anarchy reigns there. But you know, anarchy can never exist for too long. Because inevitably, someone will arise who will want to have supreme dominance, supreme control, and assert his power. It may be, it may be a, a leader of the gangs. It, it may be a dictator. And that person, of course, in effect, will then make the laws. He will be the law. 
And so the Antichrist will be a man of lawlessness, meaning here that he will govern the earth by his laws. He will be the law. And his law will be totally against God's laws. In that sense, he will be the man of sin. That's another name given to him, the man of sin. Because what is sin in essence? Well, listen to 1 John 3, verse 4, which says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And so the Antichrist will be a man who places himself above the law, but also against all of God's laws. In fact, he will assert his evil power even over the religious institutions of the world. As we read in verse 4 of our text, which describes him as who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And there you have the ultimate nature of the Antichrist indicated here. He will be man who will proclaim himself to be divine. I am God, he will say. He'll publicly assert that. I'm God. You must all serve me. And he will do that, it says in our passage, in the temple of God. And where is that? Many fundamentalists, Christians, hold that this refers to the literal temple that will one day be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem after the church has been raptured and so on. They have the view there that the church, we will be raptured before the Antichrist even comes. And then after that, the temple will be rebuilt, literally built again in the city of Jerusalem. And there will come a point when the Antichrist then will set up his throne in that temple from which he will rule over the universe or over the world. I find that idea rather strange along with the idea, of course, that there will actually be sacrifices and so on offered again on altars in the temple of Jerusalem. To me, the Bible clearly indicates that was all fulfilled when our Lord Jesus Christ himself sacrificed his life on the cross for us. But no, when the Antichrist appears, he's not concerned to set up his throne on some earthly material throne. Rather, his concern will be to rule over all people, including all Christians. He will want all the churches to honor and to worship him instead of Christ. And that's what Paul means, I believe, by the temple where the Antichrist will set up his throne. That temple is the church, the church, at least the visible church. And most churches and religions will offer their allegiance to him. In fact, only a few will be able to resist him, and they will be severely persecuted for that and slain. So the Antichrist, a man of lawlessness, will indeed be a very powerful individual. He'll be a world ruler, not only in control of the political affairs of the nations, not only their economic affairs, but also even their religious affairs and activities. They will all be under his power. And when I think about that, it strikes me that this is not yet the case in the world today, that this Antichrist has not yet appeared. 
As I uh, indicated a while ago, this will happen at the very end of time, just prior to the return of our sovereign Savior. And that's also indicated by the next verses in our text, which speak of the fact that the Antichrist's appearance is being restrained. Something is holding back his appearance, which leads me then to our third point this afternoon. Something is holding back the Antichrist. This is what Paul tells the Thessalonians in verses 5 through 8. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now let me say, I know I'm kind of giving you a little education here tonight, but there are various interpretations that are given of these verses by sound biblical scholars. But let's first of all note the main point, the main point here. And it is simply this, the Antichrist is not yet here. Certainly not in Paul's day, and I'm convinced not yet in our day either. Because, why? Because he's being restrained. He's being held back. And what is it that's holding him back? Well, before I answer that, let's note that the way to his appearance is already being prepared. The road is already being laid for him to come and to one day ascend the throne of the world. Verse 7 states, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, which means that the forces that defy God's laws, that work against God's kingdom, are already present in this world today. They're already present in Paul's day. In Paul's day, Emperor Nero was on the throne of the Roman Empire. And as you may know, if you know anything about Nero, he was a a most wicked dictator. His laws were totally against God's laws. And he was one of those emperors who who claimed divinity. And so it's not surprising that some Christians consider him to be the Antichrist. I suppose we could call him a forerunner in some sense of the Antichrist. But you see, the power of lawlessness was already at work then, as it is already at work and continues to be at work in the world today. How does that power show itself? The power of lawlessness... Well, it should be quite clear, I think. When we think of the defiance of God's laws or to God's laws today, the defiance to his laws in people's personal lives, in their own activities, but also we see it more and more in the official acts of governments and even in churches. When states make laws and courts declare that homosexual marriages are to be recognized and honored. A law, incidentally, that is at this moment being considered in the Senate of the United States, and indications are it will pass the Senate, and then of course it will go to the House to be made into a law, saying officially that we have to recognize, that the government recognizes the legitimacy of all marriages, including same-sex marriages. Well, when states, governments, make these laws so directly contrary to the will of God, that's the mystery of lawlessness at work. 
It's working many other ways in our world today. In the promotion of abortion on demand virtually, the killing of children, babies in the womb of their mothers, gambling, pornography, many more sins, while the influence and testimony of Christians at the same time is being restricted. And even churches are accepting these things, in many cases, even endorsing them or keeping silent about them, afraid for suffering the consequences if they do. At the same time, isn't it true that the world is becoming a smaller and smaller place today? As nations' economies and cultures are becoming more and more intertwined and interdependent, you know what that's leading to? It's leading, leading to the rise of the Antichrist. But something is still holding back his appearance, says the text. And what is that? I said this is not easy to understand. If we knew exactly what Paul had told the Thessalonians earlier about this, as he indicates he had, then we could understand better what he means here. Some say what's holding the Antichrist back is the power of God's providence, whereby God still controls all the events that happen in the world, even the evil decisions of men and nations. And surely God is in control of all these events. He is still sovereign over these things. Others believe that it is the Holy Spirit who is holding back the coming of the Antichrist. Others say it is the preaching of the gospel that's holding back the appearance of the Antichrist because the gospel has to be proclaimed to all the nations, said Jesus, before he returns. And I think maybe we can say all of these things. We can say all of these things can be combined as holding back the Antichrist. God is holding him back by his providential or sovereign power. He does it through also through the power of the Holy Spirit, who's at work in the hearts and lives of sinners. And he does also through the proclamation of the gospel today. All these are restraining, in a sense. Restraining, restraining the forces of sin and the manifestation of the Antichrist. Because in God's purpose, in God's plan, his truth, his kingdom has to be established first. And all of his elect people have to be gathered in to his kingdom before Jesus returns. We're still living, congregation, we're still living in the day of grace. We're still living in a period of time when the word of God can go forth throughout the world. Hindered it is in many ways to be sure, but, but it cannot be prevented from doing its work and bringing about the conversion of sinners still today in many nations. God's people can still confess Christ. We can still worship him here freely. Not maybe in other lands as freely as here, but, and we can still operate our Christian schools which exalt Christ as the king. But one day, all the restraints will be removed. Not that God will lose control in any sense, but one day, by his permissive will, he will let Satan to come out of his cage like a roaring lion and operating chiefly through that figure called the Antichrist will rule over the world. That leads me to our fourth point this afternoon. <clears throat> well then, how will the Antichrist make his appearance on the stage of the earth, of the world? 
I want you to listen now to verses 9 and 10 of our passage. It says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception of those who are perishing. Now these words describing the Antichrist and his coming are very, very telling because they indicate that the Antichrist will appear with a show, a show of power and glory that will awe, it will awe the world as though he is a supernatural person. But he is not, of course. But he's coming to be lauded with great fanfare and great power in the earth. And he will receive all kinds of celebration and rallies, will honor and glorify him. There are some countries, you know, maybe you can imagine that in your own mind, some totalitarian states or countries like North Korea, uh, we, we can't go into North Korea, but when you see pictures of North Korea today and its ruler and, and its military, you ever notice that they have this massive rally, thousands, thousands of people gathered there in these huge squares, you know, singing hail to, to their chief and with all the military hardware going past. Well, when the Antichrist comes, he will have the charisma that no leader and no pop star can match today. When he appears, all will adore him, stand in awe of him. In addition, you know why that is? Because our text says he will even be able to perform false signs and wonders, meaning acts that appear to be supernatural. That expression, signs and wonders, is a common one in the scriptures it's used mostly of God's mighty acts, like God's mighty acts, the signs and wonders he did in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh that he might let the Israelites go. In the New Testament, Jesus and his apostles did many signs and wonders, raising people from the dead, curing people instantly of their illnesses or diseases. But when the Antichrist comes, it says he'll be able to do signs and wonders. Maybe even miracles. But they will be counterfeit. They will be designed to deceive people. Verse 11 of our text says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Why will millions believe the lie of the Antichrist? Because, says verse 10, they are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They've already rejected God, already rejected his holy word. And so when the Antichrist comes, he comes with, with this, a deceitful display of power, and then they will gladly believe the lie and follow him and even worship him. And don't forget that he has the power of Satan himself, the prince of darkness, at his disposal. How hard it will be to resist the Antichrist when the whole world falls for him and he demands the allegiance of all people as he proclaims himself to be God. How hard it will be for Christians during that time period when the Antichrist reigns. He will pursue them relentlessly. He will persecute them. He will demand their subservience. That's when that great tribulation is going to come that the Bible talks about 
when false churches also even are worshiping the Antichrist, and all people will be forced to bow before him, except only a small minority. Just a small minority will not bow before him. As we read in Revelation 13, that talks about those two beasts that will arise out of the earth, and the first beast out of the sea is really the Antichrist, and he persecutes the saints and will kill all of those who do not have the mark of the beast on them. Our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And in those days, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Did you hear that? No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And what that means is that the reign of the Antichrist will be shortened. It will come to an end quickly. And so let me end with that this afternoon. The end of the Antichrist. What will happen to this mighty man of lawlessness? Well, another name given to him in our text in verse 3 is he is the son of destruction. It's called that because that's what he is doomed to be. The son of hell, who himself will end up in hell. He'll be utterly destroyed by the Son of God. The Antichrist will meet the Christ, who is more than his equal. After the Antichrist appears and rules for a brief while, then, then the glorious, then the almighty Christ will appear, says Paul. And what will that mighty Christ do when he returns? Verse 8 says, He will kill the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing, reduce him to nothing, utterly destroy him by the appearance, by our Lord's appearing. The King James and New King James Version say that Jesus will destroy him by the brightness of his coming. He will not endure the majestic and the brilliant return of God's Son. That will be the end of the Antichrist. And what an assurance, what a comfort that will be for all of God's children. I know that our focus here this afternoon has been on the Antichrist. But let's realize, my dear friends, and let's leave here this afternoon with our eyes focused on the Christ the glorious Son, our Savior. And rejoice that we can put all our faith, we can put all our hope in Him, Him who is Lord of all. And He will definitely complete His saving work for all those whom He has redeemed when He returns, including the destruction of the Antichrist. At the end of Second Thessalonians 2, the second portion of that chapter that we read, Paul urges us to give thanks to God for choosing us to be saved. And he did so, writes Paul in verse 14, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, that's our hope, that we will receive the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that we will receive the richness, the full richness of all of Christ's blessings, of life everlasting with him, of salvation in all of its beauty.
We'll receive the glory of Jesus. That's our hope. No matter what powers may come against the church, that glory is ours through faith, by grace, God's grace. And it's assured us. It's for us to hold fast that hope and that comfort. Then we can claim the blessing with which Paul ends this chapter. Listen to it. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and deed. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you instructed us tonight by your holy word. And we realize, O Lord, that we need to be taught by that word, for it is indeed a portion of the truth that you have made known to us and inspired the Apostle Paul to write. So the church may have clear understanding, may know what lies before us, may be encouraged, O Lord, to know that you still are the sovereign Lord, the one who rules over all, including the Antichrist and all aligned with him, even Satan himself is subservient to you. We thank you that we can place our hope in the Christ, so that when he appears, our blessed Lord, we can know that he will indeed have gained the victory after having destroyed all his enemies. Well, we know we're not worthy of that great glory that awaits us. But we pray that it may be something that stirs our souls anew and helps us as we live day by day to know that we are serving a great Savior. And may our lives in this coming week again manifest our love and devotion to him, our blessed Lord, in whose name we pray this. Amen.